You are listening to the No Formula Podcast, episode number 51. Welcome back to where we chat with a different entrepreneur every week, from app developers, sales experts, and coaches, to authors and social media influencers. We focus on their journeys, how they built their businesses, and the lessons they've learned along the way. Together, we confirm that there is no formula to success. I want to thank all the listeners that have been supporting the No Formula podcast. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts to let me know what you think about the interviews and don't forget to subscribe. I am your host, Laura L. Bernhard, and today we are chatting with Glenn Lundy, the founder of the 800% Club, where he helps car dealerships scale their volume and profits. Glenn is also the founder of a weekday morning show called Rise and Grind. He has his own podcast, a masterclass, and a life planner to help impact as many people as possible. But Glenn's life wasn't always so prosperous. In this episode, he opens up about depression, homelessness, and his attempt to take his own life. He reveals how he turned his life around and his shift in his mindset that led him on a better path. Work with Glenn by visiting glennlendy.com. In the meantime, continue listening to hear Glenn's ideal morning routine and how he balances work and his family of eight children. Glenn, I am so happy that you are here on the No Formula podcast. How are you today? Fabulous. Absolutely <laughs> fabulous. Be... I am so great to be here. This is awesome. Yeah, we're going to be so fabulous and entertaining this episode. I am very excited. <laughs> yes, I think, as a matter of fact, I think you should probably title this episode Fabulous and Entertaining. You know what? That's a fabulous idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. It's going to be fun. Yes, it, it is. And we're going to dive right into it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want to go all the way back to your childhood. Let's, oh, wow. let's start with that. Let's okay. start, start with your family and, and yeah, let's start there. Dude, childhood crazy, man. <laughs> so like I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona, and uh, I grew up in a very, very unique environment. I have yet to meet anyone else on the planet that's grown up this way. So my dad is black. My mom is white. And they got divorced. So my dad was in the military. We traveled kind of all over the place when I was little. And uh, he was a very strict disciplinary, you know, I don't know what kind of audience you have, so I won't use cuss words, but he was a cuss word for a lot of my early childhood. And him and my mom, uh, finally, my mom got the strength. She's my hero. And she finally got the strength to get out of this relationship that was really, really ugly and nasty. And so they got divorced when I was 11. Now, Laura, here's where it gets, you know, that part, people have done that, right? That's normal. You're like, okay, bad childhood, parents got divorced, we get that. But what was unique about my situation is my dad, who's black, he got remarried to a black woman who had four kids. And my mom, white, she got remarried to a white guy. And then they moved in to the same apartment complex, Greenlaw Garden Apartments in Flagstaff, Arizona on 7th Avenue. My dad and his new wife lived in apartment 30 with her four kids, and my mom and her new husband lived in apartment 28. There was one apartment in between my parents, right? And what was crazy is every single stereotype that you could possibly imagine 
existed in these two apartments, two doors down apart from each other. So dad's house was like crazy, wild, loud, TV in every room, hip hop music, gospel, collard greens, uh, fried chicken. Like we were drinking Kool-Aid on the regular. Like it was crazy over, you know, sports. It was just crazy over at dad's house. And then mom's house was like country music, maybe some rock and roll every once in a while. You know, I'd catch my mom like laying on the couch, reading a book or something like that, humming mm-hmm. show tunes. Like it was just two completely different cultures. And so I grew up kind of in the middle and looking back, I'm so thankful for that season. But during that season of my life, it was really difficult for me to understand where I fit in. So like my golden brown skin that really looks great today for some reason, my golden brown skin was too dark to be considered white, Mm -hmm. but it was too light to be considered black. And so I had a really tough time. Like I got along with everyone in middle school, high school, really got along with everyone, but I didn't have any deep relationships with anyone Mm because I just kind of didn't have the cultural understandings for for either side, you know, and, um, and so I kind of started getting into a lot of trouble in my teenage years, just trying to fit in with different crowds and doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Uh, my parents now were divorced. And so that was crazy. They were in new relationships. And so I was fully taking advantage of my mom and fully trying to do everything to avoid my dad. And, uh, you know, and so I was just running the streets. I grew up in, in pool halls and, uh, you know, those types of things. Um, and I got in a lot of trouble, got in a lot of trouble in those years. And so when college came around, my stepdad and my mom were like, Peace. like, go off to college, you go. And uh, I went off to college and um, that was the start of a whole nother journey. But that would be that'd be my childhood in a nutshell. <laughs> OK, before we dive into the next chapter, how many siblings do you have? So uh, I have one full-blooded sister, mm-hmm. and then I have four step-brothers and sisters, and then I have two half-brothers. So I guess that would be a total of seven. That's a big <laughs> family. <laughs> it is. And what's crazy is six of us, so when we were at dad's house, there was you know all eight of us, including my sister. So there was eight of us in dad's apartment. And that was just a three bedroom apartment. But then when we were at mom's house, it was just me and my full sister. So we each had our own bedrooms at mom's house, but we had to like find a square patch of floor when we were over at dad's. And uh, my mom was very insistent that every other weekend she's like, custody, you got to go to your dad. So we'd pack our little suitcase and walk two apartments over and mom and her and mom and my stepdad <laughs> would have a blast all weekend while we were sleeping on a little little two by two patch of carpet over at dad's. <laughs> oh my god I only have one sister and I can't imagine having so many siblings was there like competition between you guys oh yeah and, and not only competition between us but there was a little there was a weird dynamic when it came to like we were allowed to go two doors over into my mom's house and like grab a snack or some food or whatever mm. but my dad's kids and the stepkids weren't allowed to go into my mom's house. And so it created some bitter, you know, some bitterness amongst the kids. We were all just so young. Like, mm-hmm. how do you tell a six-year-old, you know, this is your brother, but he's allowed to go over there, but you're not. Like, 
mm-hmm. just was a really, it, cre- it caused a lot of uh, animosity across the siblings. Like a weird privilege that you had that didn't, right. that makes sense, but like, does it make sense when you're a child? Totally. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Okay. Right. So then you go off to college yes. and now you enter a new chapter of your life. Tell us about that. Fabulous. This it was just fabulous going forward. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so <laughs> For all the I, things I, we're about to talk about. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. So I went off to college. I got a full ride scholarship, academic scholarship into an engineering program and uh, immediately went into college like, here we go, I'm ready to take on the world. And um, I quickly learned that I really, really did not like going to class a whole lot. Uh, I was a pretty smart guy, so I would always get, I could ace the tests, but I didn't like going to class. And uh, the teachers didn't like it that I would just show up on test day and take tests. They wanted me showing up. And so they started like popping pop quizzes whenever they would notice I wasn't there. Um, so academically, I wasn't doing so well. And then I also figured out in college that I really, really like girls a lot. And so... <laughs> I spent a lot of time chasing um, young ladies around campus and I, I caught one and and her and I started dating and within like 30 days she was pregnant and uh, when she got pregnant then it was like okay um, all right so I gotta I, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do how am I gonna support this kid and so I dropped out of college after just one year um, dropped out of college, got into the workforce, started working for a call center selling America Online. That's how old I am, selling America Online to people. And then uh, from there, that led me into the car business. I started working in, in the car business selling cars when I was 20 years old. Okay. I hate to be so blunt, but at what point were you homeless? So six and a half years in the car business. Mm-hmm. And um, that season for me was an interesting one. I had an, a very successful career in the car business, but I was in a terrible environment. And I was making terrible decisions outside of the car business, drinking, drugging, chasing girls, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my daughter's mother and I split up um, when my daughter was like two and then ultimately fast forward four years when my daughter was six, I ended up losing custody of her. Um, the state of Arizona took away my rights, uh, deservedly, because I was not a wonderful person back then. And um, and so when 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 they took away rights to my daughter, I left. I packed up everything I owned and I left Flagstaff. I headed out to Vegas, did a little stint in Vegas, and then over to California. Uh, and after a little season in California, I found myself. I had burned every bridge, destroyed every relationship terrible credit, been in and out of jail, uh, you know, 17 times, actually it was only like 15 times at that point. And, uh, and um, yeah, I found myself on the beaches of San Diego, California with no one to call and nowhere to go. Okay. So that part I didn't know. (laughs) Every time I talk to you though, I I get a little bit more of your story and every time I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> okay uh, yeah, I apologize for that. Sometimes I glaze over some of that because I know that the person that I was doesn't really add value to mm-hmm. people's lives. And so I like to spend more time, you know, just 
like anytime I do a podcast or I get an opportunity to, to share an audience, like I want to make sure to value, to give them value during, the, mm-hmm. during that space. So sometimes I just kind of glaze over like the jerk that I was because that guy yeah. sure as hell didn't add value to anybody. He was not fabulous at all. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> not entertaining. No, um, no. I, I understand that point for sure. But also I feel like I know, I know you now. So the fact that every time I talk to you, there is another, and you call them seasons, another season that I don't even know how you got through under your belt just goes to, it just makes your success, your successes even more. Like I just admired it more, Mm, you know? Okay. Okay, so you, <laughs> let's go back now. <laughs> All right, cool. Pick a year, any year, pick a year. <laughs> okay, so you were in and out of jail. You end up yeah. on the beaches. Yeah. That must have been, well, without a doubt, probably the lowest point in your life. Yeah, no doubt, man. Homelessness is, like most people, when you think homeless, you think, oh, that's got to suck, right? Like you're hungry, you're broke, you don't have a place, you know, to live, that type of thing. But to be honest with you, those are just like, those are just kind of like um, little nuisances to homelessness. The true pain and torture of homelessness is that you become invisible, like 100% invisible. People won't make eye contact with you. They look over you, through you, around you, anything to not engage you, right? And I understand why. They're afraid maybe you're going to mug them. Maybe you're going to ask them for money and make them feel guilty about their situation. Like, I get why people do it, uh, but that that was the worst part is you just start to blend in with the bushes and the park benches and the surroundings, and you start to feel like when people can't see you, like you've seen movies, right? Where like somebody's a ghost or they're invisible and they don't know it. And they're trying to talk to people and people like are walking right through them. And they're just like, ah, like see me, see me, recognize me. I have worth, I have value. And you just, you just don't get that as a homeless person. Like people don't, they don't see you, man. And it's awful. And so that led me to start to lose hope. It also led me into a very deep, uh, very deep depression as each day was just the same. Here I am in this city filled with wealth. I'm walking by these $5 million beach houses. There's people holding hands, walking on the beach and riding bicycles and laughing. And there's beautiful scenery of the ocean, all of these things. And here I am just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a trash can, a waste basket that happens to be sitting on this gorgeous um, beach. And so each day was like Groundhog Day and it just got worse and worse. And I started to just like contemplate, okay, wait, like the world, I have no worth, I have no value. Any interactions I've had in my past have all ended up bad where I end up hurting somebody. So not like physically, but you know what I mean? And and so it was like, I, I probably would be better. It probably would be better if I was dead than for me to be alive, not just for me, but for 
people, right? Like for all, all the, all the people, if I'm not here, you don't have to avoid making eye contact with me. If I'm not here, then my mom doesn't have to worry about me. If I'm not here, then I can't hurt anybody, you know? And so I just reached this deep depression state. Um, and ultimately I decided uh, to go back to the very first place I ever saw the ocean, which was La Jolla, California. Uh, and I made a decision that I was going to, I was going to take my own life. And the best way for me to do that was going back to the stereotypes I talked about earlier, like black folks in water don't mix, man. So I like decided I would just swim out as far as I could into the ocean and I wouldn't be able to make it back because I'm just, I'm not a good you know swimmer um, at all. And so, and I will tell you this, Laura, it's crazy, man. Like, um, like homelessness sucks and rock bottom. And you would think, you would think wanting to end your own life would be like your lowest point. But it's weird because I went out into the ocean and, you know, the waves are splashing over me. My head's bobbing. I'm thinking, okay, this is it. You know, my heart rate's beating. I'm out, I'm getting out of breath and I'm starting to sink and all of those things. And I just remember peace, like 100% being at peace just washed over me. I was like totally comfortable with this being the end. Isn't that crazy? Right? Yeah. Like complete comfort. It wasn't scary. It wasn't panic. There was no worries, no stress, no concerns. It's like, this is it. And, and right as I reached that point where I thought that it was all going to end, you know, I went under and my feet hit the ground and I popped back up like, what the heck is going on? I looked around and I was basically almost all the way back on shore um, because the tide was coming in as I was trying to swim out. And I'm such a terrible swimmer that I couldn't even get out past the tide. And so literally, you know, God used the ocean to, to push me back onto land. And, and I just remember laying there, looking up at the stars, laying on the beach and just realizing how big the universe is. And how many opportunities are really out there and how small my problems are actually are. And then the biggest revelation I had, Laura, was I realized that in all of the negative things in my life that I had blamed other people for, like I was the constant in all of those things. Like I was there. I was there when I got arrested, went to jail. I was there when I got in a fight with my ex. I was there when, you know, like I was, and it didn't matter what city I was in or what people I was around. I was always there. And so it was kind of a, a real awakening for me to realize like, okay, I am responsible for my results, whether they're good or they're bad. I'm responsible. It's no one else. And so that began a shift in perspective for me, which helped me to start this journey of understanding the spiritual side of myself, as well as self-development. Like, okay, if I'm the if I'm the key to the castle, then I need to know everything about me that I can, that I can possibly find out, right? I've got to learn how my brain works. I've got to learn how my, my spirit works. I've got to learn everything about myself so that I can ultimately make sure I don't end up here on this beach again, right? And, uh, and so that's where that whole journey kind of started. And I'd like to say I just snapped my fingers and everything was perfect, but I'm, I'm a pretty stubborn guy. And so I still continued to make you know, a bazillion mistakes um, from that point forward. But ultimately that was where that was the beginning of the transition to where I am today. Well, first of all, I'm super glad that you're here with us today. 
Thank you. Me too. And I'm also, I can't imagine that you had to go through a near death experience to get to like learn that lesson. You know, we all have things in our lives that push us towards learning something specific. And you had to just, I don't want to be rude or anything, but you hit rock bottom, right? After that night at the ocean, what was the first thing that you did? So that next day, it was crazy. The very next day, there was a woman that came up to me. I was on the beach. There was a woman that came up to me and she had a Dianetics book. And Dianetics is like Scientology's Bible. And so she came up to me with this Dianetics book and she was like, uh, L. Ron Hubbard wrote Dianetics. It's a study of the mind. You have a conscious mind and a subconscious mind and things like that. And it was like, holy crap, this is, this is what I want. I want to learn about my mind and how it works. And so it was absolutely perfect. So she introduced me to Dianetics. She brought me back to the church, the Orange County Church of Scientology. She brought me there where I watched this like Scientology movie and it's all empowering and stuff. And then I took like this IQ test, which I scored off the charts on the IQ test. So then they offered me a job right there to work at the church of Scientology. And so I took a job and then there was a woman that was a part of the church that takes in people like me. And so like me back then. And so she had a house with like 12 or 13 other ragamuffins that they had picked up who knows where um and she basically offered housing and food and you worked at the church and you studied scientology and so i literally like got picked up off the beach put into a home roof over my head i was sleeping in sleeping bags with like 13 other people on the floor and i started studying scientology well i shouldn't say that i started studying dianetics which dianetics ultimately leads to Scientology, but originally had not, there was no Scientology. And so I started studying Dianetics and getting to understand my mind, conscious mind and subconscious mind. And that actually is where I really started to grasp the fact that we are spiritual beings, three dimensions, not just mind, body, but mind, body, spirit, because they talk about that in Scientology. And so it kind of opened the doors for me to the spiritual side. Um, and so I spent six months working at the church and studying and learning and just like completely completely immersed in learning about myself and then things kind of took a weird direction um and uh i don't ever say anything bad about anyone or or anything like that in scientology i have a lot of friends that are scientologists i and I, it really changed my life the uh dianetics really changed my life uh, but it did, it wasn't for me. There, let's just say we reached a point where I was like, okay, I think I need to get out of here. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I did. And so I got, I got out and, um, you know, quickly after that, weird things happened. And, and uh, ultimately I, I, I jumped on a plane one day, a buddy of mine called that I had met in Kentucky before with, with an old job. And uh, he said, Hey, I need a roommate. What are you doing with your life? And I was like, bro, absolutely nothing and he, and he was like you need to come to Kentucky I need a roommate and so I scrounged up uh, $1,500 cash I had my suitcase I jumped on the plane and I moved to uh to Lexington Kentucky good old Lexington Kentucky and I've been here ever since I cannot believe that that happened the day after 
you tried to commit suicide. I'm going to say it because that is part of your story. I cannot believe, like, that is the true meaning of trusting the process. No doubt. Oh my goodness. I have a very personal question for you, if you don't mind me asking. You don't have to answer if you don't want. Hey, if you can get more personal than me trying to kill myself in the ocean, go for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to ask and we'll see what happens, okay? <laughs> um, when you were feeling at your worst, why didn't you call one of your siblings? So, like, I didn't have... I had a pretty good relationship with my sister, Tina, my full sister. Mm-hmm. Um, my littlest brothers were like my half brothers. They were like eight and nine years old. They were, they were little babies. Mm-hmm. And so I guess really the four that I maybe could have called would have been my stepbrothers and sisters. And I had burned bridges with them too. Like I was oh, the okay. black sheep of the family. Yeah. You know, and so I didn't have a very good relationship with them. I'd made mistakes. Uh, um, you know, just my entire family on both sides was pretty much done with me. They loved me, but they were they weren't going to enable me. They weren't going to help me. They weren't going to, you know, do any of those things because they had tried before and they had got burned, you know, in doing so. So that was uh, it. Was just me out there. Mm. That's rough. I'm, I apologize. I was just wondering because yeah. it seemed like you grew up in a very full house. I did. And, and then you were so alone. So I was just wondering how it got to that point. But yes, you did mention before that you had burned bridges. I just didn't realize that it was also with your family. Yeah. Like to give you an example, at one point after my, um, you know, after I lost custody of my daughter and, and that type of thing, I spent a little bit of time in, in Mesa. Uh, which is where my sister lives, Mesa, Arizona. And my sister let me stay on her couch and, you know, do all those things. And I probably stayed with her for, I don't know, I probably stayed there for like two or three months. And in that two or three months, I contributed zero. I was lazy. I would go out until whatever hours of the night. Um, I just didn't respect her, her house, her rules, or her generous um offer to to help me get back on my feet like instead I would just abuse you know abuse whatever people helped me with I would just kind of abuse that to go out and do whatever I wanted even though it kept landing me in the same place mm-hmm. you know so she loved me and loved me dearly and her and I are very dear friends now but she was like bro you gotta get out of here like, you can't I got kids and you're yeah. just a lazy bum like you gotta go yeah, that makes sense. So you moved con- to Kentucky. Is that when you start working at a gar- car dealership again? So at first, when I first moved to Kentucky, I started my own. Um, I started a free poker league called Kentucky Blue Poker Crew. And at bars and restaurants paid me to have events at their place. So it was mm-hmm. completely legal, no gambling, no money. It was all a point system, just like a, a bowling league or a dart league or anything like that, except for we played cards and the bars would pay me like I was a live band or trivia night or any of those things. The more people I could get in the building, the more they would pay me. And so I started that league. I started bringing people together. I got Budweiser to sponsor it. It was one of the fastest growing uh, you know, poker leagues the state had ever seen. We had over 10,000 members. We went from 
one night a week at one bar to five to seven nights or okay, five to wait. seven bars a night. It was crazy. Wait, this is crazy. So you yeah. moved to Kentucky. What makes yeah. you jump into this to begin with? Because you just had like crazy experience. Were right. home, how, how long were you homeless for? Not long. Um, it all kind of blurs because the days kind of blur together. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But I mean, it, not long. I mean, I, I mean, probably four to six weeks, maybe somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then suddenly you have this urge to start this poker league? Well, I get back, right? Uh-huh. And this whole throughout this whole season, I'm a gambler. Like, oh. I loved gambling. I loved everything. That's why when I first lost custody of my daughter, I shot to Vegas first, right, before I went to Cali. Okay. Like, I'm a, I'm, I love cards. I love poker. I love all things Vegas. I thought I wanted to be a pit boss. I wanted to go to school at UNLV. Like, everything about Vegas was amazing to me. The lights, the energy, the people. I just loved it. And so through that season, you know, gambling was one of the things that always got me in trouble. It's like, you lose, you know, when you gamble, you lose most of the time. And so when I got to back to Kentucky, you know, I had a couple odd jobs here and there, you know, just to kind of get things going. But when I was able to accumulate enough money, I always wanted to create this free poker league. I had seen other people do it in Arizona. I loved the idea of it because it gave me the energy, it gave me the people, it gave me the gambling aspect, but there was no risk of losing, right? Because I Mm. wasn't putting any money up. And so it was perfect. I thought, you know, perfect for me. And so when I created it, you know, I had already seen it modeled before in Arizona and I just kind of stole their model, put it in Kentucky, launched it, grew it, blew it up, was making all kinds of crazy money. And, um, the bad part was that when you run a free poker league in bars and restaurants seven nights a week, that means that you are in bars and restaurants seven nights a week. And that's where I was until two, three in the morning, every single night I was in a bar drinking, drugging, you know, so I still was making all of the same mistakes, just kind of a different environment. And then I met this super hot smoking, crazy bartender. And uh, we started dating and like 30 days later, she was pregnant. <laughs> Is that your current wife? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so she was pregnant and I went, <gasps> okay, I am not about to go through this whole vicious cycle mm. again. Like I am not doing it. And so when my, uh, my now wife got pregnant we were like okay you gotta be a big boy now you can't hang out in bars and restaurants every single night uh and the only thing I knew how to do was sell cars because that was that was all I had done and so we found a dealership here in her hometown where she grew up and I went into that dealership with the mindset of I am going to if I'm gonna get back in the business I'm gonna make a massive impact on this industry I'm gonna make a massive impact nationwide we're gonna flip the car industry on its head I am not gonna go back down that same road that I did before and so that was my intentions going in and that's exactly exactly what I did yeah so you actually grew a car dealership 800% in five years that was the one that you grew that's correct okay so how did you do that? <laughs> what an open-ended question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, <laughs> I showed up, I went home, I worked a lot. No, really, we had to flip the model on its head. So the first thing that I did is I wrote down everything that 
I knew people hated about the car business from a consumer aspect. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote down everything that people hated about the car business from an employee aspect. And so once I could see all those outlined, I was like, all right, we're going to do the exact opposite of all of these things, right? If we can do the exact opposite, we should be able to get a better result. So that was step one. Step two is I looked at the typical business model, right? So most people, they're like, okay, I want to make money. I want to be profitable, right? So, so what can I generate? How can I make some cash? It's about money. And then once they start figuring out something that they can sell or a commodity or whatever to make money, then they're like, okay, so now I need more, uh, you know, I need more people. If I can get more people or I'm sorry, I need more customers. If I can get more customers, then I can sell more product, which means I can make some more money. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when we start to get more customers, then they go, okay, now if I could get more people, to help me service more customers, then I can make more money, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like your typical business model. That's how most people think about it. So we flipped that on its head. I was like, okay, wait a minute. If I can get great people and serve people and train people and grow people and evolve people, then they ultimately are going to draw in more customers because they're going to take care of them, right? They're going to service them right. And if I can do that, then I will make more money so instead of thinking profit customer employee we started thinking employee customer profit flipped the model on its head and that when you look at things that way you make completely different decisions which ultimately created a dynamic culture of amazing individuals that were all fighting for the greater good and we were just able to like grow 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 scale Uh, we went from a, a dealership that had been there 50 years selling 120 cars a month to ultimately, um, my biggest month was in March of 2018. We sold 1,043 cars in 27 business days. And we became the second largest used car franchise dealership in the country. And this is all in a town population, 9,600, tiny little town here in Kentucky. So pretty incredible. That is crazy. Do you know if people from out of town came to that car dealership to buy cars? Or was it oh, yeah. all from no, that? All day long. All day long. Like, Okay. All over the country. We delivered cars to people everywhere in the United States. I delivered okay. a car to Seattle, Washington once, like all over. I love that model where you're just, you start with the employees. That's right. And I'm just curious, when you're training the employees, are you teaching them obviously how to treat customers? But in terms of the training, are you training them for sales or are you training them with growth strategies? And to me, I see them as as those are different things. Sure. Um, but I don't know if you see them as different things. Yeah. So we train, we train on both. Right. Mm. So one of the things uh, I call it, one of our like Lundy core values uh, that I, that I taught all of my leaders is that we, we train on life skills, not just job skills. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I teach you, Laura, how to make a bunch of money, but I don't teach you, how to be fruitful with your money, what good am I doing you, right? So now you just got a bunch of cash running around willy-nilly, you're blowing it, right? You're hitting up the clubs, doing all the things, and you've got nothing to show for it. You're investing hours and time and energy into me and my business, and and I appreciate that, but then on the backside, you're broke every two weeks, right? Or every 10 days, right? Four days before your next check, you're broke. And so for me, it was really important. We have to teach people wealth management as well as like, we got to teach them how to make money and then we got to teach them how to keep it and what to do with it, 
right? We got to teach people how to work hard, but then we also have to teach people how to maximize your hours at home so you have good relationships with your spouse and your children. We have to teach people uh, to rise and grind, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to, I'm going to need you to put in the work because none of the success is not easy. So you're going to have to grind every single day, but I'm also going to teach you how to rise with intention and purpose so that you can serve the mind, the body and the spirit. So you don't get burnt out. So So we got to teach a little bit of everything. This, what you were teaching the employees is essentially what became your program. That's right. The rise and the rise and grind program. Sort of what I, what I was teaching my employees and my staff is what became my 800% club, which is oh, where okay. I work with dealers yeah. now. Um, but rise and grind was a part of that. I believe yeah. that all successful people have to have a powerful morning routine. It's mm-hmm. important to hit that reset button and fuel the mind, the body, and the spirit first thing in the morning before you let the world come in. Foundation is everything. And so I taught my guys the power of a, of a good morning routine. And when I saw how it affected and impacted them, I decided we need to do more of this like online, not just in my store, but how can we affect people around the world? Okay. So I always see, um, you know, sometimes you see on Instagram little pictures where they're like, oh, this is, um, I can't even think of a name right now. (laughs) This is Bill Gates morning routine. This is Oprah Winfrey's morning routine, all this stuff. Now, when I look at these routines, it's always packed with like meditation, walking dogs, all these things. To me, when I'm looking at these morning routines, I'm thinking, well, this is their morning routine now that they're rich and famous. Right. So tell me if I'm wrong, but when you're (laughs) (laughs) hustling, but when you're hustling, when you're building an empire like you did, when you're helping so many people, Your morning routine doesn't necessarily have all those key components, and I'm air quoting for everyone who's listening, those key components that all the successful people are talking about. It should. So you're saying, let's say average Joe, average Jane, you should have, you know, that hour of exercising, that meditation, your full-fledged breakfast, you know, a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, they also have families and sure. maybe a nine to five job. How do you fit that rise and grind perfect routine yeah. in, a, in a normal, regular life like the most of us? All right. Two, two components to this. So there's okay. really just five simple steps, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the morning, your morning routine should consist of five simple steps that are going to serve your mind, your body, and your spirit. And they don't take the very long right? It's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's not complicated. I actually wrote a book about it. You can download it. It's a free ebook. You can go to the morning5.com. So step one is don't hit the snooze button. Step two is don't touch your phone first thing in the morning, right? All that crap is going to be there later. Mm-hmm. Step three is you need to write down your gratitude and your goals. What are you thankful for? What are you reaching for? Now, a lot of people will tell you, write down your goals. And I actually think just writing down goals without gratitude is detrimental to your health because you're sitting there going, I wish I had more of this. I wish I had this. I wish I had this. But you're not being grateful for what you already have. So it can actually make you feel less than, right? You're writing all these goals of all these things you want. And you're looking at your life going, golly, I suck, right? It's a negative effect. Whereas if I go, I am so thankful for my house. I am so thankful for the money. I am so thankful for heat and for water and for my family, my wife and my kids. And then we reach 
right? But I will work hard for a bigger home. I will work hard for more money. Those types of things, it's a completely different frequency. So first, we don't hit snooze. Second, we don't touch our phone. Third, we write down our gratitude and goals. You should be able to do the, all of that right there in 15, 20 minutes, tops. Step four is you need to take care of the physical. An object in motion tends to stay in motion. So I don't care if you need to crawl, you need to walk, you need to run, you wanna go play golf, you wanna go play basketball, just get into motion. Some type of physical activity that increases your heart rate, right? We wanna increase the heart rate, we wanna burn some calories, we wanna get the body moving, we wanna get the juices flowing. So that's step four. And then step five is really, really simple. You have spent the first 45 minutes or hour of the day on yourself, right? Which is great. You've been very selfish. You're like, I'm not letting you in. I'm not answering your email. I'm not looking at your text. I'm not gonna follow your social media. I'm not doing any of that. Leave me alone for the first 45 minutes of the hour of the day. Now, once you've done that and you've fed the mind, the body, and the spirit, now you have a responsibility to release that energy out into the universe. So you send out an encouraging message whether it's a text message, a Facebook message to your spouse, to a kid, to whatever, you release something positive out into the universe and that's step five and that's how you now welcome in the rest of the world. So you've served mind, body, spirit, you've done it all in less than an hour and now you're productively pushing out into the world so that the universe can use that to come back and be very, very fruitful. That's, that's how that works. So that's the one thing. The second component to your question is you're like, people working nine to five, how do they have time? Da, 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 da. People think they need far more sleep than they really need. We sleep in cycles. Human beings sleep in cycles we have forever and ever and ever and ever. It did not make sense back in the old days before we had ADT security systems and all this other stuff. It didn't make sense to go into a coma for eight to nine hours at a time. You would get eaten by like a saber tooth tiger or something, right? I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it just wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. And so we sleep in cycles and each cycle is two to three hours long. We go from a light sleep to a deep sleep back to a light, right? Most people will sleep three to four of those cycles a night, which is where we get this eight to 10 hour sleep deal, but you don't need that. Technically, if you can wake up at peak sleep cycle, you can live off one cycle, two cycles, three, four, whatever you wanna do. Once you get your cycle figured out, it's like a superpower. So for me, I go to bed at 11.30 at night and I get up at 3.50 a.m. That's two full sleep cycles for me. That's four hours and 20 minutes. That's what I sleep every night. So I get up at 3.50, I do my hour of stuff, I write my show, I go in, I do my show, I'm back home at 6.30, breakfast with the kids, all of that stuff. I do more before 6.30 a.m. than most people do all day. I'm not saying you have to get up at 3.50. I'm saying, if you find, if it, if it matters to you, if you really want to be successful, find an hour first thing in the morning for you to attack those five steps. That means you got to go to bed a little bit earlier the night before, do that. If you got to wake up a little bit earlier, do that. It's worth the sacrifice. And especially if you get it in line with your sleep cycles, you'll actually have more energy than you do with what you're doing now. Yeah, you have to want it. Got to want it. You have to want it. I've been in shock since... Yeah, and entertaining. <laughs> um, I'm still in shock that you have so little sleep. And here I am complaining about my six or seven hours. Um, so if you're doing I six to seven, you're basically doing three sleep cycles. And I will do that sometimes. Like mm -hmm. if I know like on a Saturday I don't have a show or a Sunday I don't have a show, 
then I'll add another sleep cycle. So I'll mm -hmm. sleep six hours and 30 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. But the key is to figure out what your cycle is and enroll with that. So if I'm on the West Coast and I've got to do a show and I've got a dinner the night before, I'll actually stay up later sometimes so that I can only sleep two hours and 10 minutes so that I can stay within my cycle so I can have full energy. How do you know it's two hours and 10 minutes? I figured it out. I had to tweak. First, you use an app and you kind of figure out, get a rough idea. Mm -hmm. Then you start moving your alarm clock around a little bit. You want to find that sweet spot where when you wake up within 60 seconds of your feet hitting the floor, you feel like you're wide awake. Hmm. No really... coffee, no caffeine. I'm a no caffeine guy. How about that? I don't, I don't drink coffee either. Yeah, way to go, girl. <laughs> 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 also the title of this episode no caffeine yes. club <laughs> that's right <laughs> i love it <laughs> um okay i also i wanted to comment i really love your um the goals and the gratitude you can't just have goals because right. then you forget of everything that you already have totally. i think that's a really important lesson um and if anyone gets anything from this i think that anybody can relate to that yeah man. that we all have goals but if you're not thankful for what you have, then you're throwing yourself off. Totally. Okay. So you're training the employees. This is what you realize the 800 club, the rise and grind. And then at what point do you leave the dealership to start doing your own thing? Because if you go, if anybody goes on Glenn's website, uh, you, you will find so much content <laughs> so much content and options for you to be part of just the motivation that you bring to the table that it's amazing amazing you can get lost in there thank you you have a planner the 800 uh club you have a book the right okay the rising grind is a planner but then you also yeah. have merch like you right. can buy a cap and then you speak at events, you have a podcast, you sell yeah. programs. Yeah. It's just, whoa, <laughs> at what point? <laughs> and I have seven children going on eight with that beautiful wife I told you about. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned it. I was going to mention it before. Um, but yeah, so there's just a lot going on. So at what point do you start building this empire? So the car business, when we blew up in that, it got me in a lot of recognition across mm -hmm. the country because it was just an anomaly what we did. And so it helped seal me as an expert in the industry. And we and social media was a big part of, of how we grew that dealership, how we got the message out, how we stretched out past um, just our little tiny town of Paris, Kentucky. So we were utilizing social media. I was teaching my teams to utilize social media. And, and I was actually, I started doing Saturday morning sales meetings um, Every dealership has a Saturday morning sales meeting. I started streaming those live so that my customers could see behind the curtain, like our sales meetings, this is how we treat our people. This is not only our customers, but I wanted other salespeople around the nation to be like, dude, their sales meetings are awesome. Our sales meetings suck. I want to go work for that guy. Right. So yeah. I just started streaming them and dude, they were powerful. I'm up there. I'm speaking. I got the suit on. Right. I'm like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Right. Like I'm making it hype and people started watching all across the industry, big players, manufacturers, everything. They're watching our meetings every Saturday. It got, it got crazy. And we started recruiting top level talent with talent. We started selling more cars, doing all of those things. And so I continued to kind of build, 
and established myself as the expert in the auto space through that season online and offline. And so as that continued to grow, more and more people were reaching out like, hey, can you help us? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can we come to your store? Can we do this? Can we do that? And I was kind of like, no, I'm focused here. I'm laser. You know, this is my jam. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I started doing the Rise and Grind show on January 6th of 2018. I just had this tug man, this pool. It was like, there's a lot of negativity in the world. I really think morning routines are, are important to success. The auto industry, people's morning routines suck. So let's start doing a show and just kind of see what happens. And so I started doing the show in January, fast forward to October of 2018, 10 months later, and I'm standing on stage with Eric Thomas, the number one motivational speaker in the world, sharing the stage with him at this incredible event. And uh, the goosebumps on my arms, the hairs, I was just like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like I am literally in the exact spot on the universe where I was supposed to be. And so a series of things kind of happened right, right around that, that uh, meeting Eric and all of that. And when I went back to the dealership, um, I just decided it was time for me to go to the next chapter or the next season, the next phase, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And so um, I went to the owners and basically just said, you know, I think that this season is over. We've done everything that we can do. We sold a thousand stinking cars. We blew up. We've made a massive impact in the industry, but I'm called for more. And, uh, and so I left and went home to my wife who was pregnant at the time, do any second. And I was like, honey, I just quit my, you know, I was making a lot of money, a lot of money. I was the face of the dealership. It's very comfortable position. I could have stayed there forever. Uh, and so I hear, I walk in, I tell my wife, I quit. And Laura, the smile on her face was the biggest smile I've ever seen in my entire life. And it shocked me because I hadn't realized that as I had built this empire in the auto industry and she was popping out all these amazing babies, <laughs> I had basically kind of gone back to what I had done before, not in a negative way though, but I was so deeply involved in in this dealership and helping these people that I mean I was leaving at seven in the morning and coming home at 10 o'clock at night mm-hmm. you know every day my wife was basically a single mom with all these kids and so when I told her I quit she just smiled she was so relieved she was like oh my gosh really are you kidding I'm like no I'm here honey we're gonna do things different and so now we've built our business it's been two years now and We've been able to build a business where I eat breakfast and dinner with my wife and my kids 250 days a year. That's uh, That was our goal. To, before that, I only ate breakfast and dinner with my kids on Sundays. That was it. Um, you know, so it, it, we went from from having breakfast and dinner together, you know, 50 days a year to now we have breakfast and dinner together 250 days a year. So it's been pretty awesome. That actually goes right into my next question because I wanted to ask you, well, first of all, for for everyone to know, you have eight children. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Right. So the fact that she was doing that alone is crazy. Even if they were less children, it's what she had. There were six, four, still a lot. (laughs) Well, she when I quit, she was pregnant with our seventh child. Yeah. And she homeschools them all too. It's crazy. What? Yeah. So like no breaks, like my wife gets no breaks. She, my wife has been pregnant or breastfeeding. We've been together a little, uh, 
I guess my daughter's birthday is today. She turned 11. So my wife and I have been together 12 years and my wife has been pregnant or breastfeeding all but five months of those 12 <gasps> years. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> look, you look at your face. I wish people on the podcast could see your face. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, crazy, man. Crazy. Crazy. Okay, just I have to compose myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um that's your a lot. Your face went white. Like your face went whiter. Totally <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> oh it was goodness. the same. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> um. Okay, so yeah, so all your kids are eleven years old or younger. And Correct. okay, so she she's super mom, basically. Yeah, no doubt. Um so you have this deal with her the 250 days, but it seems like now you have so many projects, as I mentioned before. How how do you do like the whole work life balance? How do you make sure that you're there for the other hundred days? Yeah, so a um, couple of things. So we have our, um, you know, we have our non-negotiables. So we, so we figured out what the non-negotiables were. And 250 days a year is a non-negotiable. Like that has, that has to happen. And so as we've created this business, again, we like, we like took the whole equation, just flipped it upside down, right? Like this is the lifestyle we want to live. And now we create a business around that. We don't do it the other way around. We're not creating our life around work. We're creating work around life. And in doing so, I've been able to figure out, like, for example, my, when I started working with dealerships, at first I was going into these dealerships. I was flying. And it was taking me a day to get there, a day to work with them for the day, and a day to get home. It was taking me three days to work with one dealership for 12 hours. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. All these dealerships have the same problems. I just need to work with the leaders, the owners, the GMs, and I don't even need to be in store. Laura, so people think things take way longer than they actually think, right? Like I remember going to business conferences or business meetings and we would take all day, but we really only got like two hours of work done. Right. Like if you even look at school as kids, you send your kids off at like 730 in the morning back before mm -hmm. when you were allowed to send your kids places. You send your kids off at like seven, uh, seven o'clock in the morning, 730. And they come home at four in the afternoon. Right. Like they're gone eight, nine hours of the day. In that eight, nine hours, they had six 45 minute classes. So they actually only did you know, four hours of work, but they were gone nine hours because you had in recess and walking down the halls and shooting the, you know, whatever with their friends and, you know, the travel and all that. You add in all that space. So people, people underestimate how much you can get done if you stay laser focused in short amounts of times. And then you don't have to be rude or disrespectful or anything like that. Like you just tell people, I'm not hanging out with you all day to, 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 to work for an hour. Like it's just not going to happen. And so now what I've done is my, my business is pretty much 98% virtual. So, and I work with people in groups. So instead of working with one dealership every three days, I now work with 46 dealerships total across the country. And I work with those 46 dealerships 
one hour on Tuesday, one hour on Wednesday, and two hours on Friday. So four hours a week, I'm able to work with 46 dealerships across the nation, uh, all in that four hour, in those little four hour slots. Then there's two stores that I do go visit. One store I go visit just for a day and a half a month. The other store I go visit three days every three months. And so, and, and, and income wise, we're making, you know, my company generates more dollars now than I ever did working 70 hours a week in a dealership. And now I only have to be somewhere four hours a week, literally, that I have to be like in front of a computer screen training. Now it's just like a pro athlete. I spend hours researching. I spend hours prepping. I spend hours practicing. I spend hours learning. I spend, you know, I, there's a lot of work that goes into those four hours of execution, like a lot of work, but that's stuff I can do at home. That's stuff that I can do in between my wife having an appointment. That's stuff I can do when my kid's not playing a baseball game or a soccer game or my daughter's got a dance recital, right? Like, so I do those things in my time, but I li but we live our life. Uh, we live our life the way we want to, and then I fit everything else into our schedule. I love that you you did the you turned it backwards again, and you made sure that your business revolved around your life and not the way around. That's right. I have to I have to remember that when doing anything, like making right. sure it's how I want to do it. I really love that piece of advice, and. So I think we had a pretty fabulous and entertaining time today. Hey, I hope so. That was my <laughs> goal and intention. Uh, it was so great talking to you. I have one last question okay, before we part ways. Okay. And this is the question I ask all my guests. So this is okay. the No Formula podcast because there right. is no single formula to success. Okay. What do you think is your formula that got you to where you are today? Frequency plus proximity equals affinity. Okay. <laughs> okay, can, can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if you can understand this formula right here, okay, mm -hmm. this, is, this formula will unlock so many things okay. in your life. All right, frequency, mm -hmm. right, which is how often, like the, the amount of interaction, right? Frequency mm -hmm. plus proximity. So proximity is how close are we in space mm -hmm. equals affinity. The more often you and I spend time together, mm -hmm. the closer in proximity we spend that time, the more we're going to like each other as long as it's a positive interaction every time. Mm -hmm. If it's a negative interaction, then of course, you know, we want to punch each other in the face, right? doesn't work. So knowing this, knowing this, right? I'm going to give you an example. You decide, Laura's like, you know what? I'm going to start working out. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to start doing my thing, right? I'm going to go three days a week at 6.30 a.m., right? And so you start going to the gym and you're going Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And every time you're there, you're like, Endorphins are kicking in, you're getting the heart rate up, so on and so forth. And you notice that every time you're there, there's someone else, guy, girl, doesn't matter, that is kind of on the same schedule as you. Like you run into them in the elevator every time, or you see them, they're, they're working on the, you know, on their traps while you're working on your laps or whatever it is, right? So the first few times you see them, you don't 
acknowledge, you don't say anything, so on and so forth. But as you start to see them more frequency, right? You're in proximity because you're both working out. There's a feel good feeling. It's actually being created by the exercise itself. It's not from that person, but there's this positive feeling. You will start to, in time, you'll be like, Hey, good morning. You'll start to say good morning to that person. But Hey, Hey, mm -hmm. good morning. How are you, Lord? Right. You'll start doing the little head nod, the good mornings. And then that leads into, as you work out together more, like see each other more Then that leads to, Oh, Hey, you start to have a conversation in the locker room. Do you have kids? What do you do for a living? Right. You start and next thing, you know, six months later, this is your best friend in the world, or you guys are workout partners or you're dating, whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. That's how this works. So frequency plus proximity equals affinity. Now, now that you know, that's how it works. How can we apply it? My show is a perfect example of frequency plus proximity equals affinity. So my frequency is five days a week. I do my show, 5.30 a.m., right? I'm there, boom, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Proximity-wise, Laura, you can't get any closer to somebody's phone, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I have more intimate relationships with the people that watch my show than they do with their spouse, they take me with them everywhere. They take me with them in the shower in the morning. They take me with them in the bathroom while they're on the toilet going number two. They're mm -hmm. watching my show, right? I'm in their intimate space. You cannot get any closer in proximity than this guy right here. And I make sure every time that we have an interaction, it's positive. Every time, everything I post, everything I share, everything I do. And so it just increases, increases affinity. People stinking love me. They love me. And because we've applied that equation for so long, now I'm reaping the rewards from it. We've got loyal followers that support everything we do. I can put out an ugly shirt, they'll buy it. I can put out ugly, you know, ugly gear, ugly hats, whatever. I can make a post, like they're there and they're loyal and they love me because I've served them with this equation the entire time. So I suggest to entrepreneurs, business owners, podcasters, any of those things, Always remember, stay frequent, right? Like a clock, just keep going. Don't stop. Your frequency's got to be there. Utilize the proximity. We have amazing tools nowadays, especially if you can get face-to-face -face video, right? People respond to face. So even if you're doing a podcast, you could stream it live on Facebook at the same time, or you could record it and put it on Facebook, but get that proximity so you're face-to-face -face with people. Always leave people feeling good, and they'll learn to love you. That's a great piece of advice for entrepreneurs. That has a lot to do with visibility and getting yourself out there. Um, so yeah, that's that's a great formula. Thank and you. what's amazing that it kind of ties into connections, making yeah. connections with people. And sure. what I was going to tell you actually after we we stopped recording is that it Ooh, seems, behind the scenes talk. Yeah, yeah, just like, oh. <laughs> okay. Ah. But I'll tell you now, now that you mentioned it, um, is that I see a recurring um, trend, I guess you can call it, in your whole story, is that it was always about connections. Always. always. At the beginning with your family, when you didn't have anybody, that was the lack of connections. Then it was your friend calling you. Then it was, you know, every single point, no matter what, always had to do with connections and the people that were in your life. No doubt. So Glenn, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And I'm so excited to keep in touch with you and see all the amazing things that you continue to do for everybody. 
thank you so very much for having me and sharing this space with me and being fabulous and quite entertaining. And I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. And anytime you need anything, you just let me know. Thank you so much. You bet. There is so much to unpack from this episode with Glenn, but I'm going to focus on three areas of his story. First, the power of connections. As I mentioned at the end of the episode, your relationships with people are extremely important, especially in Glenn's story. Whether it's with family, employees, or customers, don't burn bridges. Second, I loved Glenn's formula to success. Frequency plus proximity equals infinity. It's basically a formula to staying top of mind of your potential customers. And third, being innovative. I'm referring to when he disrupted the automobile industry and the way he changed his business model. He tried something nobody else was doing and it worked very well for him. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.